0: Good evening, everybody. Good to see you, those who come out on a cold night. Um, I got caught tonight, or earlier this afternoon, actually. I went out to to my folks' place and catch up with my mum and dad and uh, decided to go for a walk, which is not unusual for me to do. And uh, so I got this little circuit of about six Ks, and the rain was just keeping off. I had this scripture going through my mind from Proverbs it says, If a man looks to the weather, he neither sows nor reaps because, um, you know, you're always measuring. It's like, oh, I won't sow my seed because it's going to be too dry or I won't sow it because it's too too wet and I won't harvest because it's going to, you know, and you always hesitate. And so the proverb is about hesitation. So I looked at the sky and I could see the cloud over the kaimais and I said, man, hesitates because of the weather. I'm not going to hesitate. So off I went and about 10 minutes before uh, I got home, it absolutely opened up. Did any of you guys see that? Yeah, man, I tell you what. And uh, I just got in, into uh, into the home my parents live, and there was my my dear mum in the car. She was just starting the car to go and find me, you know. So it was it was so nice. And um, I think her and my dad had debated for probably ten minutes to do that, which left the whole thing a bit of a pointless exercise. But anyway, I appreciated the sentiment. Well, um, tonight's a little bit different from me um, because here I am sort of interacting with uh, this picture. And uh, so that's something in itself is a little bit more dynamic than what I'm used to. Used to. Uh, but I'm also privileged to pick up the tail end of the series. Um, and when we talked about the series right at the beginning, Rob did a fantastic job of talking about who Rembrandt was, and um, he, was, um, he was born 400 years, Hold on, sorry, 300 years before I was born. So exactly in the same year, 300 years later, which means that uh, there's been a transfer of nothing because um, <laughs> I have no artistic quality at all, no artistic skills. If I was paid to draw a straight line, it would profit me nothing. Okay, but in saying that, like all of us, and particularly as we get on in life, we start to appreciate things more. Uh, but I just wanted to show you a picture that for me has always been a um, just a, a great picture that for some reason has always been has always warmed my soul. And it's a a constable, um, written by d- drawn by by John Constable. And this is called The Haywain. And it's a picture of, as you can see, of a cart going through a uh, a stream there and the, the workers and and it's just a sort of a comfortable picture that captures for me some of the experiences that I had as a child. Not that I went I lived in an age where there was horse and cart. <laughs> But um, just the beauty of that place, and I used to spend my um, summers down in the middle of the king country. Uh, my grandparents had a farm down there, and I used to help them with haymaking and just the whole thing of the busyness of the farm. Another particular place that's dear to me is uh, Tekapo. Uh, my family um, <coughs> spent three and a half months down there one year, and this was essentially the view that we had. And so now I've got paintings and pictures and of course um, people You know, so there's Michaela this is at Larnock Castle in Ireland where she just kissed the Balani Stone and the Balani Stone when you kiss that you're supposed to get the gift of the gab the gift of the Irish Okay, and, um, and of course family um, here's my tribe my, my two girls and my son Taylor and um, yeah they're, they're delightful uh, people, to us, anyway. Um, and uh, that's the beauty of being a, a father. You're allowed to say these things. Um, some special moments. My son and I, uh, he just shot this little stag, so that was a good, fun time for us. Um, but I was in Spain two years ago. I've been there a few times. And this is this is a, a picture that I took in a museum of a painting. And it just so captured my attention because it reminded me of what I do Every week. (laughs) I just, I just like it. It's like this guy is trying to figure something out. It's, this guy's Saint Jerome and, uh, he's trying to figure something out. And I thought, yeah, that's me. Uh, And look at the guy's head. It's like it's throbbing, you know, throbbing with pain, trying to work something out. And, uh, and that in itself is a, is a picture that sort of caught my attention. So we capture art and art speaks to us and art surrounds us and it, it does um, wonderful things for us because it reminds us of things we've seen, reminds us of things to come. It captures moments for our, in our lives of emotion and uh, carries a certain amount of energy to us and for me, uh, art, probably a little bit like opera music and older music now is starting to become more and more familiar to me and more appreciated. Um, I remember when I was about 18, I was sort of doing a little bit of what this guy's doing up here on this picture. I was thinking about my future, and I thought, you know what? I can imagine that in 30 or 40 years' time, um, I'm going to appreciate the things that I don't appreciate now. And I didn't have any rationale for that. It's just that I figured that those old people were once young like me, and maybe they didn't appreciate old things but now that they're older, they appreciate things that are older than themselves. So therefore, I will get to the stage where, as I get older, I too will appreciate things that are way older than myself. Does that make sense? <laughs> Some folks who are more my age here are like, "Yep, that's what happened to me," you know. And uh, it's not got it's got nothing to do with the fact that you've, you you know, you find that the music or the tastes of the past that you had. Uh, don't appeal to you anymore. It's just that your your worldview becomes larger, and there's such a an expansion of God's world into your understanding. Because when it comes to history, you're increasingly a part of it. So let's move on to Rembrandt. Now, Rembrandt confuses us because there are actually two pictures of Saul and David, and I'm going to describe those to you. Right uh, this way. Here is um, what they believe is the first painting of Saul and David, which, of course, is different to the one we've got here. But there are actually two stories in the Scriptures that describe a time when David was playing the harp or the lyre to pacify King Saul. One happened before David slayed Goliath because Saul had a few emotional problems, and we're going to talk about those soon. And somebody was needed to play the harp to pacify this king. And they found this young guy uh, in Jesse's household called David who was anointed to play this, this musical instrument. And so they brought him in and it cooled him down. All right. So this happens and then we read the story that David is famous for as a child of when he slays Goliath. However, immediately after that, we've got another event that happens and this is when... David uh, plays the harp again for King Saul, but King Saul is so wound up that he tries to kill him as a result of this. So I just want to read to us um, the scriptures that relate what I think to this painting here. It says, When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the Philistine being Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. So you can see, even though as a young guy, he was immediately credited with being a better warrior than, than, David, uh, than Saul, I should say. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall, but David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So we can see this incredible turmoil that has gone on immediately after Goliath has been slain. You see, the killing of Goliath wasn't the one event that that battle was all about, because after Goliath was slain, the armies of Israel chased down the Philistines and absolutely wasted them. Uh, so this is where the story comes out, that David has slain his tens of thousands, even though Saul only slain a thousand. So the story has preceded them. The woman, the young people, the old people have come out into the streets and celebrated this new young warrior who's amongst them. The story of David has now become legendary, even in just a matter of a short period of time. And David is still just a boy. But when they get back to the, the palace, uh, things start to return back to normal as quickly as possible, and maybe this was part of what David's plan was too, because here was Saul really, really upset, and David is the guy who starts to play music for him. And this is where we find the scene now. And so one of the things that concern us is right at the beginning it says that the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. We go, oh, oh, hold on. How did God give an evil spirit to somebody? Um, there's probably, as commentators say, there's a bit of a loss of translation in here because what we've got is in the following sentence is that he was prophesying in his house. So he was in a place of worship. This is Saul. He was in a place of worship. Um, interpreters probably say the best way to describe that is that Um, Saul was suffering from depression, manic depression. Okay, So he was maybe bipolar. He was going from one extreme to the next. Angry, then happy. Sad, then aggressive. Joyful, then depressed. And that's what manic depression does. A person's emotional state is all over the place. Enhanced when you feel that there's pressure upon you or when the world's against you. And then when you feel the world's against you, it enhances the nature of that manic depression. So it's a, it's a downward spiral where it just feeds itself. Okay. So this is the picture that we find ourselves looking at tonight. And so what we've got is, um, a guy called Saul who's, who's threatened by David and yet he loves David. And, uh, this is, a, this is where the tension lies. He loves David because David is the guy who can soothe his heart with his music. He loves David because he's the guy that he needs to lead his armies into battle. He loves David because David was brave enough to take on the Philistine we call Goliath. And so here is David uh, being loved upon and hated upon at the same time because Saul also knows that David is more than likely to take the kingdom either off him or be the next one to take it when Saul dies. So either at a level at which he takes it legitimately, or maybe one day he rises up in rebellion and takes it often by force. And so here we have the perfect dynamics to keep Saul in a place where he's manically depressed. He's all over the place. His emotions are up, his emotions are down. And so what we're going to try to do tonight is see what it was that Rembrandt saw in this story and how he depicts in this picture, which is a very, very simple picture, isn't it, of uh, the, this, this very, very tense time that's going on between Saul and David. Now, one of the disappointments I have about doing this series as being last is that I think I got given the picture that had nothing in it except two characters. Because Rob promised us at the beginning, he said, you know that Rembrandt paints himself into the picture quite regularly. you know." And so I've been looking at this picture going... Where is Rembrandt? Okay? Is there something going on over here? Where is Rembrandt? But no, Rob, no Rembrandt. Rembrandt is always uh, putting into the picture to make a picture look softer and more friendly, a dog. So I'm looking for the dog. You know? I'm like, where's the dog? Oh, there's no dog. Okay. So I've got Saul and David. Okay. Is there any action going on here? Is there anything just about to happen? Is there like, like in the storm that we saw when the disciples were with Jesus? Is there all this action going on? No. We just got a couple of sad cases here, you know, and creation, uh, creating a very, very tense picture. But what we find is, is amazing if we look at it. You see, Saul was a king who had lost his way. He was anointed by God to be the first king of Israel. And... As the first king of Israel, there was a tremendous amount of expectation placed upon him. But we can see quite quickly that even though Saul was anointed by God to be the king, we look at the the clothes that he's wearing and we see that he is overwhelmed by culture, the culture of the day and the wealth of the day. He's got this beautiful coloured turban and colour meant money okay, in that day because colour was very, very rare. Most clothes that you had was this sort of colour. Uh, purple was the royal colour, very expensive. So colour, and what we've got here, and probably cut off a little bit by the frame, is right at the top here is a crown, okay? And you can only just see that crown. And what Rembrandt is saying here is, here's this guy Saul, anointed to be king, but he's been consumed by the wealth and privilege that being king will give you. And so what he's trying to tell us is that, yes, he's the king and the crown is at the top of his head, but it's only a very small part of his identity because he's been consumed with the things of the world and the privileges that come from, from that power. Um, and so, therefore, um, this symbolises really Saul's dalliance with the, wor- with the world. And I use the word dalliance uh, specifically. It's not a common word, but um, a dalliance is like a, a sexual romance, a sexual liaison or a sexual dance, okay? It's something that is provocative. It's something that is in the realm of temptation, okay? And that's what's happened here because Saul has been tempted by the world and he's embraced it and he's having a romance with the things of the world, yet he should be set apart completely for God. The second thing we notice about Saul, and this is true to what scriptures tell us, is that Saul is an exceptionally big man. So when he was called to be king, uh, he was chosen by God, and he was also chosen by the people. The prophet Samuel set him aside, as God told him to do, but he was noted as being someone who was head and shoulders above the other men from his, from his time. So he was an exceptionally big man, and so therefore he represented everything that a king should be or could be in respect to his physical stature, especially being a warrior king. And so we can just see how strong he looks um, but in saying this, um, Saul is still relatively young. How do we know that he's relatively young? Well, we don't find any of what I've got in my bed when I grow it. There's no grey coming through, okay? And so therefore we know that this guy may only be 30, maybe early 30s, and yet he looks tired, he looks haggard, he looks worn out, he looks like he's under an enormous amount of pressure, and, and this is the picture that Rembrandt starts to take us, take, uh, show to us to take us on a little journey. Because we see here that here is David wanting to pacify Saul, and yet we can see right in the middle of this picture that there's some mood change that's happened whilst David's been playing that has caught Saul by surprise. Why? Because Saul probably turned up maybe a little bit angry, wanting to have some music played. And next thing, he's been struck by his emotions. Why? Because we see he's reached out to the curtain to dry his eyes. Now, if he was already weeping before he turned up, he would have had something else that would just be perfectly practical, wouldn't it? A cloth, a handkerchief, or the like. But here he is, caught in this emotional state, uh, a little bit embarrassed, yes, And we see the embarrassment not only in him, but in David, because David doesn't want to look at him because he's crying. And so Saul doesn't want himself to be looked at because he's crying. So Saul here is representing this confused packet of emotions that he's carrying. And uh, and it's a very, very powerful and charged picture for that reason. So um, you see him uh, reaching out for the curtain. He's wiping his eyes. Who knows? He might blow his nose. I hope not, but he might do. Uh, but, you know, the, the tension that we've caught in here is that kings don't cry, do they? Men don't cry. Warriors don't cry, you know? And uh, to be a man's man, you know, he was trying to be a man's man, but he is caught up in all of these conflicted emotions. And so we can see this confliction in his face here, because not only is he crying and he's wiping the tears in one eye, but this eye looks distinctly vacant, doesn't it? It really does. It looks like what they call in um, military terms the thousand-yard stare. And if you've ever seen any photographs of men coming back off the front after having been in battle, they got what they call the thousand-yard stare. It's just an emptiness and a blackness of, oh, my God, what have I seen? Oh, my God, what have I done? You know? And and Saul has got that same sort of picture where he, he doesn't understand his own mind, he doesn't understand his own place right now, and he's just Deeply, deeply pained by the experience that he's, he's having. And so we can start to see this. And then, and then the picture itself starts to enhance this mood of blackness because what we've got in here, uh, which is a complete contradiction to the way that Rembrandt normally paints, we've got, we've got nothing over here. It's really dark. And the thing that Rembrandt has known about is his use of light light that comes in from from a window or light that comes through the trees that enhances the uh, the atmosphere or the environment to to shine onto the the character that he the things that he wants us to see. But in here in all other Rembrandt's paintings, this would be filled with some sort of demonstration of light of light that brings hope. So you can imagine the intentionality that went through Rembrandt's mind when he says, in this picture, I'm not going to do what I normally done, Normally have done. I'm going to create a mood of darkness, a mood of loss, a mood of sadness. There's no other people around. You know? When you've got other people around, that can lighten up a background or it can create a little bit more of a story. But here you're just left with the mystery of the darkness, which uh, accentuates what it is that this picture is all about and this story is all about. The thing that also catches our attention about this story is, um, or this painting is, is the spear. Um, who carries a spear in your own palace? You know, a spear is a, is a weapon. It'll be like Queen Elizabeth walking around uh, her palace, Buckingham Palace, with an AK-47. You know, seriously, that's the equivalent today. Why? Because this spear was Saul's weapon. It was his weapon of choice. And you can see here by the way he holds it, that he's caressing it okay? because he trusts it. And maybe it's the only thing he can trust in his life right now. And you notice how he's got it in the in the crook of his arm. Now, interestingly, last week, Clint turned up here and his shoulder was all tense and tight and his neck was all tight. Why? Because he'd spent the previous day holding his newborn grandson. Okay, And so we go, wow, that's a beautiful image, and you paid a bit of a price for that, Clint. But here is, here is Saul holding something in the same sort of way. It's like he's cherishing it. And you can see his fingers here just delicately touching it. But the spear tells a story, you see, because um, by, by holding it like he is, we know that the, the soldier that he is that spear could be in flight within two seconds. It's just a matter of whipping it up and like that. And we can tell that this spear's probably had a lot of experience. You notice the difference in the color of light here on this this area here? Okay, and it's smooth. Here's the sort of the handle area. But um, this is the spear, and the tip of the spear is a dark brown color, which is actually the color blood goes when it dries. So this is a weapon that's been well used. It's something that he trusts. It's been in battles before. It's like a close friend to him. It's something he can trust. When in his palace, he's not sure who he can trust anymore. And here he has this this little this little guy in front of him, who um, creates more tension for him because what's going on is that this little guy, who brings beautiful music into his life, is also a threat. <laughs> Well, how does how does that work? He's, he's got a spear, he's got a little wee guy in front of him, and he's got these tensions going on in his life, and um, and 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 if, if we could put music to this painting, it'd be like that sort of dun 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 if you've ever seen the Jaws movie, there's this there'd be this sort of music surrounding this because. Right here, right now, there's this drama that is about to unfold. Okay, we know in the story that it's only a matter of time before that spear is turned over and there's some action, and David is going to be chased out of that room. So let's have a look at David. Um, He's not really having a good time of it, is he? He's worried. He's scared you can see that on his face and and like his harp, I think it'd be easy to say he's highly strung. He's highly strung okay? Um, if you could see his feet, my guess is that his feet would be pointed that way. He is doing what he's called to do um, but he's poised like a cat ready to run because he knows who this guy is. And David's looking down, And he's looking away, but his eyes are in two places. You can see that he's looking down here at the spear. There's just enough angle in that eye there to see where he's looking. He's not going to look at the king's face. He doesn't want to embarrass the king by seeing him cry. He doesn't want to acknowledge the king in this emotional state because that would embarrass him and that could incite him to do something crazy. But you can better believe it on watching that spear. Maybe it's even out of shot. But the moment that moves... He's going to run, and you can almost, you can always see, also see that this um, this harp is actually pointed in his direction, and that gives him the only little bit of um, protection that he could get in the situation that he's in. You know he might be able to just push that harp towards Saul when he makes his move, and so you can see this whole thing is just tense, and uh, and yet at the at the same time. There's also a picture of faith going on here. Where's the faith? Well, David has taken a leap of faith to be this close. And maybe if it's just me reading more in it than I should, you know, Rembrandt couldn't have had a painting with a hundred yards away. But I know for myself, if I was called to do that for the king, I'd be like, Hi, can you hear me from here? that's what I'd be doing. So there's an element of faith in here where he's like, I know the call on my life. It's been prophesied that I'm going to be the king and I've got to trust God in every given situation, not just lean into my own experience here and and, and into the the ways of the flesh. So the other thing that we need to remind ourselves of is that um, David is there because... He's an anointed musician. And uh, what we know by this is that um, only David could do what David did. Okay, So this is a part of the gifting that God has given him. When David plays this harp, wonderful things happen. Beautiful things happen. Powerful things happen. And as much as this music from this harp through this man with the anointing of God on him, allows this heart to be soothed, okay? And that's a, a beautiful gift, isn't it, that David has, and yet he's caught in this horrible tension of being the man he's called to be and yet knowing he's under threat. The other thing that we notice about David is, is his hands. We can tell that he's a clever musician because he's got fingers on on a string. Each, each finger has, is on a string. And uh, there's been a few times when I've heard and seen people play the harp up close, and they are doing literally this with their fingers, eh? all of them, at the same time, simultaneously. And you go, how do you do that? Well, nothing 10,000 hours of practice won't fix, I'm sure. But the thing that we notice about David's hands is that um, they're quite big, aren't they, for uh, somebody who's relatively small. So like any 13- or 14-year-old boy, often their hands and their feet grow before the rest of them. Okay, mum's ever seen this? Yeah? You know, he's sort of like, look at those big mitts that you've got, you know, when they've got themselves, you know, a mighty big sandwich for the third time that day. But remember that these hands are also the hands of a warrior. At his own confession, David has talked about having killed the bear, killed the lion, and he impressed Saul with this before he was given the opportunity to slay Goliath. So these Hands are skilled with this eye. It's skilled that he might be able to use those weapons and throw those stones and kill Goliath like he's done. But then this is also offset the size of his hands. You can see the man he's going to become. He's got this prepubescent little fuzz here, which most 14-year-old boys try to grow as soon as they get the opportunity to have a little bit of something pushing out of their face. Okay, probably not prepubescent, pubescent boys. That gives him, from my perspective, anyway the age of a fourteen year old you know a, a dog would lick it off probably, but um, that's sort of where he 's at. you can tell his age. The other thing about this though is that Rembrandt has also projected upon this guy what a fine looking character would have looked like in the sixteenth century because we're told that David was a handsome young guy, and so what we do is we we look. In our own culture at the time, and we work out who would be a handsome young guy and we project that into here. So, this young guy here would have been a typically handsome young man of his day. All right. I'm not sure who would fill that bill now. Who would be a handsome young guy? I suppose 10 years ago would have been Justin Bieber, you know, as a 14 year old or 15 year old. But it's a, it's a great little grab there at what social history tells us of what somebody would have looked like. Um, so the big picture in itself is also one of size. And this is where the mystery of this whole story comes in, because we've got a guy who's manically depressed, who's a huge man, maybe six foot six, six foot seven, and you've got a 13-,14-year-old boy who's taken out a giant, who plays beautiful music. And he is threatened by him. And this is where the story is. The size is just a way in which um, Rembrandt catches that whole tension. Um, the crazy thing is that for all his size, Saul can't even buy what this guy brings. Yeah, you know, he can't buy it because it's a gift from God. He's not only got the gift from God, but now he's got a reputation which is bigger than Saul. Saul's got the physical size. David the boy has the, has the, 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 the people eating out of his hand. Okay. Saul can't buy that. And so here is David both loved and despised. Loved and despised. Which leads us to the scene that we don't see here, but we know is going to happen. And that this scene is going to break in a few moments' time into an act of violence. An act of violence that is just sudden. Uh, It's it's like an eruption, a volcano that happens, firstly in Saul's heart, then his head, and then his body follows. And there's going to be this enormous amount of energy thrown out of this scene that we don't get to see, where um, this, this man decides he's going to kill this boy. Because this boy, even though he loves him, he hates him. And even though he hates him, he loves him. And so this confusion is going to manifest itself in such a way that David is going to have to escape, and it says in the scriptures, two times from the spear that's being thrown at him as the spear hits the wall. So David is prepared, and just as well he's prepared, because That spear, as we can tell, has already killed many people before David. So by God's grace, by David's preparation, uh, he manages to elude the sword, the uh, the spear. Which brings us to a, 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 a really sad conclusion about this picture, doesn't it? It's a scene that's full of energy, but instead of a scene being filled with hope, It's filled with with pain, the pain of a guy who's lost and losing his way, the pain of somebody who had so much potential and yet was overwhelmed by this black dog of depression, but equally overwhelmed by the things of the world where he took possession of that which was given him and felt that he was entitled, a man who couldn't see beyond himself to see that there was another person of a different generation who God was raising up, rightfully so. They were probably at least 20 years apart, I just had a guess. So that would have been perfectly appropriate. He wasn't going to anoint his successor. He wanted to kill his successor. And in doing so, established his own destiny by God just taking his hand off his life and causing Saul to ultimately fall in battle. And David It's probably like a lot of young men throughout all generations. All generations. Because sadly, this scenario gets repeated time and time again. Where young men and young women grow up with an idealised projection from them onto the adults around them of what adults should be. Adults should be kind. They should be caring. They should be capable and confident and have the ability to raise others up. But here he is as a young boy finding that through no fault of his own, just through his obedience and his skill and his giftedness, that he's a threat to somebody who's more than twice his age. Sadly, this is a repeated thing that goes on in the world even today. And uh, even in homes in New Zealand, there'll be thousands of young men and young women who have been looking for an example from those who are older than them, maybe their parents or their aunties and uncles, maybe the people in the neighborhood, who could have and should have done better with the way that they raised them. But now they find themselves in an environment where they're threatened, intimidated, and through no fault of their own, are a target of other people's envy and jealousy. And so the beautiful thing about this picture is that it's timeless because it's a biblical story, but it's timeless because it captures for us something of the human condition, the human condition, the sinful nature of men and women in such a poignant way. It's a picture that is filled with emotion, filled with tension, just about to explode, just about to explode. And so the only way we can really apply this into our lives in this context is to ask ourselves, how are we meeting the expectations of somebody younger, as an older person? How am I creating space for somebody who's from a different generation coming through? How can I help them by laying down my spear, by not seeing people as a threat, but seeing people as a blessing? But... Also, to those of us who are younger here today, the sad reality is that God doesn't promise us leaders who are perfect. God doesn't promise us parents who are perfect. He doesn't promise you a perfect boss. And so, therefore, all I can say, in a, in a, without trying to be cynical, is welcome to the world. Welcome to the real world. Welcome to the world that's um, not shaped by Disneyland or Hollywood. But by real people who have real fears, real real concerns, and don't always have it all together. And so, on that basis, um, i want to I want to finish because what we're left here is with David recognizing that for all the gifts and talents he has that could impress people, he's left realizing that he can only trust in God alone. He can only trust in God alone. So um, let me pray for us. Just stay seated. Father, what a great way to finish, to be able to stop and say, in you alone only. You're the one who's unchanging. You're the one who knows us intimately, understands our fears, understands our concerns, but also understands our gifts gifts you've given us, gifts that are going to impress people way older than us, impress people in ways that also will threaten them. And, Lord, I just want to pray that uh, for those who are younger today on this journey of uh, entering into the, that adult community, that they'll be able to recognise that it's not always an even playing field out there, that uh, hard work and giftedness doesn't always just make an easy way uh, and create an easy opening for us. And Lord, for those of us like myself who are older, I just want to thank you, Lord, that we can be reminded that it is completely upon us to make a way for those whom you are preparing, those whom you're preparing to lead, those who you are preparing to inspire, those who you are preparing to to have a new vision of the world around us. And Lord, we don't want to be throwing spears at them. We want to be embracing them and creating opportunities for them to prosper. And so, Lord, from this story, we, we thank you for how well it has travelled through um, 300 years of history. And in doing so, Lord, it touches us tonight because it carries that eternal message of your relationship with us, how we ultimately trust in you alone. So we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.